Okay, uh, uh, today's session is conducting civil traffic hearings. Again, we're very pleased to have uh, Judge Alicia Villa from the City of Phoenix uh, with us today. And um, we'll go ahead and get started. Okay, thank you. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I appreciate you having me come down here to speak with you about um, civil traffic is something that I do practically on a daily basis. Um, I am a, a civil hearing officer for Phoenix Municipal Court. So in addition to civil traffic, I also handle any of the other civil non-traffic matters that are within the uh, jurisdiction of Phoenix. Um, so that would include violations on the light rail, violations at the airport, um, as well as our uh, neighborhood zoning, building code, and neighborhood preservation cases. So, uh, but the majority of my docket, the majority of my caseload is civil traffic. Um, I've been a civil traffic hearing officer for Phoenix for 12 years. Prior to that, I was an assistant city prosecutor for Phoenix. Um, so the majority of my legal career have been uh, with issues with regard to traffic, either criminal or civil. Um, I recognize a lot of you from last year, so some of you will, will uh, have this presentation as being a, a, a repeat. Um, essentially, we just wanted to give you a refresher about the rules and the procedures for civil traffic. Um, go over a couple of scenarios that you may see and some issues that you may see um, with regard to hearings. And then um, Charles is also going to have some other scenarios that we'll go through as a class. And then finally, we'll do uh, mock hearings where we will actually evaluate you and how you conduct a civil traffic hearing. Um, and hopefully, we'll be able to get out a little bit early so we can beat that Friday afternoon traffic. Um, I like to do presentations based on what you want to know, so please feel free to ask questions, uh, give comments. Um, last year in this class, I know we had a couple of, of uh, instances with some pretty good dialogue where people had disagreements about issues or about rulings, um, and that's good because for many of these issues, there is no clear-cut black and white answer. It's going to be very fact-specific, it's going to depend on um, the case itself. So, uh, so it's good to have those, those dialogues and kind of flush out some of those uh, issues. All right, so as far as how civil traffic hearing off, uh, hearings are conducted, um, of course, we always want to look first to our rules of procedure. Um, when you have a pure civil traffic case, you will look specifically to the Arizona rules of procedure in civil traffic and civil voting cases. Um, if there is at least one active criminal uh, charge with regard to that case, um, then you will look at the rules of criminal procedure. But let's say you start with a DUI and the DUI charges get scratched and there's nothing left but the civil traffic, that case then reverts to the civil traffic rules, okay? Um, which is obviously a lot less of a, a standard of proof. Um, there may not be a prosecutor appearing in civil traffic matters depending on your jurisdiction. Um, and so it really does chase, change the entire dynamic of the case. Um, we also do have some procedures that are contained in Title 28 of Arizona Revised Statutes. Uh, for example, the time limits for filing a complaint. Um, those specific parameters you're not going to find in the rules. You will have to look at Arizona Revised Statute 28, I believe it's 1592 and 93. Um, that talk about the actual requirements for filing and the time limits. Um, in civil traffic matters, the state is not required to be uh, represented by a prosecutor. In fact, most times they are not. It will just be the officer presenting the case as the state's uh, complainant or as the, as the chief witness. 
Um, if the state does intend to be represented by a prosecutor, it must inform the court and the defendant at least 10 calendar days before the hearing or within 10 calendar days of notice that the defendant will be represented. Um, now in my court, our city prosecutors never appear in civil traffic matters, regardless of whether the defendant is represented, regardless if it's a case involving a serious injury or fatality. Um, if the city prosecutor has not filed the aggravating criminal charge, they will not appear for the hearings. Um, but in some jurisdictions, I understand that they will uh, appear if they get notice that the defendant is represented. So that's just going to be dependent on your court. And they will not appear in our courts? They will not. Okay. All right. Um, even if there is not a prosecutor, uh, that does not convert. Hello. Hello. Oh, yes. Please make sure you sign in so you get credit. Um, so even if there is not a prosecutor, the officer is not converted to a prosecutor, although sometimes they think they are. <laughs> um, but the officer is simply a witness for the state. Um, so therefore, the rules specifically indicate that they cannot question witnesses, nor can they make legal arguments or objections. <coughs> yes. The only motion that can be made by, on their behalf is a motion to continue. Um, they can also request an amendment if there is a technical amendment to be made. Um, but as far as like a motion to, let's see, well, even technically a motion to dismiss, they can't really make um, because that's something. Yeah, I've seen them do it. They will normally do it, but under the rules, technically, they're not. They're not. A, they're not a prosecutor. So. They can request that a charge be dismissed, for example, or if like, they don't have their notes and they're not prepared to proceed on a charge, they can indicate that, that they're not ready to proceed. Uh, but as far as a formal motion, filing a formal motion, they really can't do that. So if they said the state's not prepared to you know, go with this case or some kind of legal, you know, jargon, and they say, so therefore I'd like to dismiss it. Mm -hmm. That's a request. So, okay. yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Now, I, I actually made that statement in front of uh, Jerry Landau from the Arizona um, office, Administrative Office of the Courts, and he had an absolute fit and said, there is no way that an officer can do that. They are not an attorney. They are not a party. They're not a and, and I just said, but practically speaking, this is how it operates in the courts. I mean, if the officer is the only witness, and they are saying they cannot proceed on a charge or they're declining to proceed on a charge, then that charge is going to be dismissed. So is that the same as amending it? Well, amending it, um, the rules do specifically talk about amendments. So that's why it's, it's, a, it's a difference between what is in the rules and what is not in the rules. Yes? Can the officer ask who will continue the case? Yes. Just like any other witness, um, anybody can ask for a continuance, and it's going to be based on whether or not the court feels that there is good cause. Okay. Um, so, for example, in a collision case, if you have a witness who's been subpoenaed and they would like to ask for a continuance because they're scheduled to be out of town or something like that, they can request that. It's up to you whether you want to do it. Okay. Okay. All right. Any other questions on that? Okay. Right. Representation by the defendant. Um, the defendant must notify the court uh, and the state within 10 calendar days before the civil traffic hearing that they will be represented. Um, again, for, for your courts as well as for my court, doesn't matter if they're going to be represented. The prosecutors aren't going to appear anyway, but they still need to notify the court that they're going to be represented. 
Um, failure to comply with the rule means that the uh, defendant's right to be represented is waived. Now, what if defense counsel files a notice of appearance on the day of the hearing? What do you do in that situation? And you don't have a defendant. Yeah. And you don't have a defendant. Okay, well that's a secondary issue. But first of all, do you let the attorney appear and file their notice and, and appear on the day of the hearing? I do. You do? Okay. We do in our court because, again, um, we know that the prosecutor's office does not appear, so their 10-day rule, or their 10-day, um, uh, right, their 10-day time to prepare or their 10-day time to decide whether they want to appear or not is waived because they've had a blanket turned down for all civil traffic cases. Um, so this is really just, you know, it, it's up to you as a judge. If you feel you have enough time and want to allow the attorney to appear, you can do that. If you want to continue it or if you want to deny their notice of appearance, you can do that as well. Um, now as far as the client not appearing, um, in civil traffic matters, the, the defendant can waive their presence, um, but they should have something from the attorney indicating that they are acknowledging that they're waiving their presence. Um, now, whether that's just an offer of proof from the attorney or if they have an actual affidavit indicating they're waiving their presence, again, that's going to be up to you and what you feel is acceptable. Um, but they can waive their presence. Now, if they waive their presence for the hearing, um, then they are also waiving in-court identification. So they can't argue that, um, you know, and say, well, the officer didn't point out my client if the client isn't there. <laughs> they can't get it both ways. Doesn't the officer have the responsibility of presenting how they determine the identity of the defendant, though the defendant's not present? They do still have to establish a nexus between who has been cited. Um, so they would say, yes, I, uh, I asked the, the individual for identification and the driver's license was in the name of John Q. Smith or, or whatever. Um, so yes, they do have to still establish that. But as far as the in-court identification is saying, and that he is the gentleman sitting uh, to my left in the striped shirt with the yellow tie. That is waived if they're not there. Yes. If the, yes, it's uh, Charles. <laughs> if the defendant is not there, and you said that the attorney needs to have something to prove that he's, he's representing him. Yes. Is it a document? Is it a piece of paper? Well, normally it would be that they would be filing their written notice of appearance indicating that they are, in fact, representing that individual. Okay. And that's sufficient? That's sufficient. Now, as far as them waiving the client's presence, they should either be making that statement on the record um, or some of the uh, attorneys will have an actual affidavit from their defendant, from their client, okay. indicating that. Thank you. Yes. It can be picky, but do you make them file the notice of appearance before you start anything? Yes. Yes, you want to make sure that that is documented in your file. It has to be official. Um, we have just the standard forms that they can fill out just quickly. It doesn't have to be on their letterhead or anything like that. It's just as long as it's documented. Um, and you do want to make sure that they are a legitimate attorney in the state of Arizona um, because we do have some individuals. Um, I've had one personally who was trying to defend his family member. I believe it was a daughter. And I asked him to file a notice of appearance, and he refused to. And I said, well, sir, if you can't file, if you won't file a notice of appearance, then I cannot allow you to represent her in court. And he said, well, but I, I don't understand why I can't. She's, she's giving permission, and she wants me to represent her. And I said, well, if you're going to represent her as her attorney, you need to file a notice of appearance. And he would not do it. So after, after the case, he went ahead and he just 
ex uh, left the room and she proceeded on her own. But afterwards, I had this strange feeling. So I went and looked him up on Arizona attorney. He's disbarred. Mm -hmm. So. I had a case two weeks ago where grandfather was an attorney in New Jersey and wanted to represent his grandson. Couldn't do it. Right, exactly. He wasn't happy, but he couldn't. Right, and, and you'll get that as well. You'll get um, attorneys who are retired. You'll get attorneys from other jurisdictions, attorneys who are under disciplinary problems. So you just want to make sure that they are legitimate attorneys, and that's one of the reasons to have them file that official document. Yes, I was protesting in this building this morning, and it wasn't civil traffic. I had security come and remove a, a lady from the building because she told me she was going to appear for the defendant who was there. She wasn't an attorney. Mm -hmm. And I said, you're not going to speak. And she goes, oh, yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> and and you'll get that with some of our sovereign citizens as well. She, she, she was a sovereign citizen. She yes. wanted the judgment set aside because the judge who signed it was not a member of the Arizona Bar. Mm -hmm. You had her removed yeah. from the building or just from the courtroom? I first told her she was going to sit down. She needed to sit down. She said, no, I'm going to speak. I said, no, you're not going to speak. And she goes, oh, yes, I am. I said, then you're leaving the room. Mm -hmm. Call security. Yeah. Yeah, so usually it's from the courtroom, and then whatever security determines after that is on them. Well, then he actually says, you want her out of the building? And he said, yes. Oh, okay. When you mentioned uh, that the defendant's not there, and the attorney is I know in downtown Joseph, we get a lot of over the road truck drivers. Mm -hmm. Yes. Never, the attorney the opens up them all the time. Right, right. And typically that's what you'll find is it's usually people who are out of state residents or, you know, and that's why they hire an attorney because they don't want to have to come back uh, to come to court. So, so, and that's fine. If they, if they can't be here or they don't want to be here, then they can leave their presence. And that's the whole purpose of them having an attorney represent them is so that they can have some representation at the hearing. You let them sit up there with them for moral support. Um, I generally, you mean if they're not an Give attorney? Give them one chance. If, yeah. they're, if they're not an attorney? Like a dad. Um, if it's a juvenile or a younger person that just wants someone there next to them for moral support, I will. Um, if it's somebody that seems to be a little unstable, um, then I'll let them have a friend or family member. Um, I had one woman who, this was actually on one of the, the neighborhood property cases, um, she was very anxious, very distraught, and she wanted her caseworker to sit next to her. And I mean, I just figured if we want to get through this proceeding, I got to have somebody at least let this woman, you know, she, so she feels comfortable. But I made it very clear to her caseworker that she could not, you know, talk to her during the proceeding. She couldn't tell her anything. She definitely couldn't talk unless she was called as a witness. Um, and she was fine. She just literally wanted someone to sit next to her. And, and she got through it. This may be confusing two things. I'm very new pro tem. In civil tra are these civil traffic, can someone actually appear telephonically like we talked about? We're going to get to that in just okay, a moment. Okay, so I'll ask that question. Yeah, wonder. we'll get to that in just a moment. Okay. All right, so I think that was all of the questions that were there. All right, failure to appear at a hearing. Um, if no witness appears for the state, then the court shall dismiss the complaint unless the court continues the matter for good cause. Um, so good cause would be if you do have a motion to continue that was filed. Uh, let's say, for example, the officer, um, well, I had one this morning. The officer is out on bereavement leave. Um, I found that to be good cause. The defendant wasn't there, so I had no objection from the defendant, so I went ahead and I continued it. 
Um, but normally, if the officer's not there, um, then it usually results in a The defendant wasn't there, mm -hmm. and the officer wasn't there. Right, neither, nobody was there. So but I did have a motion to continue that had been filed on behalf of the officer. Okay, so let me go to Judge McMurray. Well, no, I just ha had one where, I don't know if it was a phone message or, or written, but the officer had just been told that he would, needed to be detailed because he's DPS and the president's suddenly in town and he's in a security mm -hmm. detail. So we're continuing the hearing for that reason. Okay, then we just had a, a conversation about that as well as far as telephonic um, motions to continue. Our court, our policy is we do not receive any requests or we do not grant any requests to continue by phone. Um, and so they have to send in some sort of documentation. Uh, the police department is usually very good about sending things if they have advance notice. Um, but like something like that, if an officer is stuck on a detail or, you know, let's say they're stuck on shooting or something like that, mm -hmm. then the police department just generally says, look, the officer's not going to be there, but we don't have enough time to file anything. So, um, I, and I, I use the same rule of thumb for defendants as well. When they call in, we tell them, you know, send us something by email, send us something by fax, let us, you know, give a, send us something in writing, because we have no idea who's calling. We don't know if it's the defendant, the officer, or who. Yes? Um, your, your statement that if the state isn't there, you dismiss it, but right. in, your, in your case, the example you gave, what if the defendant was there? If the defendant, if the defendant was there and objected, um, then I would just look at whether or not it was good cause, whether or not the motion was filed timely enough, um, you know. But we also have to consider the fact that, you know, is this a prejudice to the defendant? They're going to have to come back again for court, you Why know. Why does the defendant object? The case is going to be dismissed. She's going to walk out. Well, objecting to it being continued. I think oh, that's yeah, what yeah, she was saying. Yeah, 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 she's objecting to the continuance. Um, so generally, if if we have something that's last minute like that. Um, and the defendant says, look, I took time off of work to be here, I made special arrangements, then we're generally not going to grab it because it wasn't timely. All right, now let's say if the state's witness appears and the defendant fails to appear, then you shall enter a default judgment. Um, exception for that is if you know that the defendant is in active military service, um, the service person's Act. They, it used to be the Uniform Soldiers and Safety Act, and then they renamed it, but the Civil Service Persons Act um, indicates that if someone is on active military service, the court cannot enter a default judgment against them. Um, I, I was asked a question at the last training about whether that meant they had to be overseas or out of state. It does not indicate that. So if they're on active deployment at Luke Air Force Base, and they send us notice saying, I'm on active deployment, I, you know, then you can't default them and you have to hold the case until they're no longer on active uh, deployment. So if that means you hold it for a year, you hold it for two years, four years, whatever it is, you just, the court holds it. All right, now when you have the case, like we said earlier, if the defendant fails to appear and there is no state's witness, so you go out there, you call the case, and no one is there on either side, um, technically under the rules, you should dismiss the complaint. Um, and that's, again, presuming that you've got no motions to continue that were filed, you just don't have anyone at all. Then you dismiss it. Do you wait at a certain time? Um, yes. We, we give a, our court policy is to give a 15-minute grace period. So we go out, call it at the docket time, wait 15 minutes, and then call it again. Um, right. no. uh, okay. Um, on the default, does, the, does the, do you take testimony or is it just? No. 
it up just a default for, for FTA? Right, because you don't want to take any testimony because that would be considered ex parte since the other uh, party is not there. So let's say, for example, you do have a defendant who later comes in and says, I was in the hospital and shows you documentation that they were in the hospital. That you can then set aside the default and reset the case. But if you've already heard testimony, then now you're, you've prejudiced yourself on that case. So you shouldn't take any testimony. Yes? Just like, what do you do in a situation where a, the officer doesn't show up and the defendant is called in and said, well, I'm running late or even asked for, you know, and the clerk's telling me you could ask for a continuance or whatever, but you have no officer. I mean, I think you have to dismiss it, but I don't think it's really fair that they didn't know, but I'm right. curious. Right, and, and that's your call. That's your call. Um, you know, uh, if, if, like I said, if you've got no motions to continue on either side and you've just got no one there, then the rules say you dismiss. But if you do have some information from one side or the other, then you can take that into consideration and make your decision based on that. You know, it's all just based on fairness. All right. Discovery. Um, one of the best things I think about civil traffic is the fact that we don't have to deal with discovery. Um, specifically, the rules indicate that there is no pre-hearing discovery um, absent extraordinary circumstances. Um, so the only extraordinary circumstances that I've ever actually found where I have continued a case in order to allow um, the parties to, to review the, the discovery or the evidence um, have been in really complex collision cases. So something where maybe multiple vehicles or um, if there was like a serious injury, things like that. Um, I've also had some issues, uh, particularly with our transit vehicles, where they have um, like the videos uh, or um, even some of the dash cams and things like that, um, where sometimes they want to have time to review the, the uh, evidence. Um, now, normally the rules say that they are supposed to exchange discovery and review discovery immediately prior to the hearing. Um, but sometimes, even with our, just because of our docket sizes and time limits, you just don't have an extra 30, 40 minutes for them to sit there and review items and then start the hearing. So if I look at it and I see this is not something that they can immediately review and, and kind of go over in a reasonable amount of time, um, then I will consider continuing the matter to allow them to review. Uh, but for most part, uh, for most of the time, civil traffic matters are going to be very, very easy. It's looking at the officer's notes on their complaint or maybe looking at the accident report, which is only a few pages long. Very easy for someone to review that within a few minutes. I was like, none of us are going to get into my question, but since you're here for Phoenix, what do you do if uh, an operator or one of the other rails is involved in an accident? Is that handled under civil trouble? Um, the operator for the light rail? Yeah. I have not had any where the actual operator of the light rail trains have been cited. I have had them where motorists are cited, um, and that's where I said you do have videos uh, because the light rail cameras will often catch, you know, a vehicle turning in front of the train or something like that, okay. um, and they will bring those videos in. But I have not had one where uh, an operator. Some, sometimes there will be one. Yeah, I'm sure there will be at some point, but I haven't transferred to justice. Probably, <laughs> probably, or Superior Court or somewhere else. Um, let's see. Okay. Okay. If a defendant requests to see the officer's notes during the hearing, um, the officer must show them. Um, that is specifically in the rule. And I've had some officers who have, you know, really 
um, declined to do that even during the hearing. Um, and they, they will try to say, well, these are my own personal notes and I, I don't think they have a right to see them. Well, according to the rules, they do. Um, and so, you know, if the officer wrote something on there, you know, defendant is a complete idiot or something like that, then they're going to have to deal with that, so they shouldn't be writing that on their notes. Um, but their notes are, uh, they're not covered by work product, they're not confidential, they are subject to discovery, and the defendant can ask to see them. Well, I was trying to be nice. We're being recorded. <laughs> I don't want to say anything inappropriate, but... Um, and, and I have actually had officers who have wrote, written things on there that uh, they probably shouldn't have. <laughs> so, okay, order of proceedings. I think we all pretty much know this, but in case you need a refresher, Rule 19 specifically indicates the order that you are to conduct the hearing. So essentially, state's case in chief, followed by the defendant's uh, case in chief, state's rebuttal. Um, now that is up to the court's discretion if you want to allow rebuttal or not. Um, also, sir rebuttal, again, up to the court's discretion if you want to allow that or not. Um, argument of parties if permitted by the court, so they do not have a right to give a closing argument. Of course, the officer cannot give a closing argument at all because they're not allowed to make legal arguments. Um, and then the final uh, portion of the hearing is the ruling by the court. Um, so this is really, really easy because it gives you essentially a roadmap. Now, most defendants, because most of them are pro per and have no idea of how to do a hearing, um, they will not know how to follow this procedure. And so it's your job to kind of walk them through it. Um, I will tell you many times, almost 75% of the time when I ask a defendant, do you have any questions for the officer? They then, argue. Right, they try or to argue testify. or testify. They go into, well, you know, well, I wasn't speeding and blah, 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 blah. So you kind of, as, as um, a judge or as a judicial officer, when you're handling a proper, you are allowed to give them general information about the procedure. So you can tell them, sir, I understand you want to give me your testimony. However, this is your time to question the officer. Do you have any specific questions that you would like to ask the officer at this point? They still don't understand. You can give them a little more. You can say a question is something for example, that begins with who, what, where. <laughs> and I always tell them, reference their testimony. Reference their testimony. Because they'll ask them, you know, off the wall questions, you know, what color was the sky that day or something, you know. Mm -hmm. So I always say, reference their, you know, testimony. They right. can ask questions about something that the officer hasn't testified about, but yeah. is relevant to the charge. Right, it just has to be relevant, because we do have open cross-examination in yeah. Arizona. Um, so let's say, for example, it was a dark day and the color outside was important to the defendant as yeah, far as visibility is concerned. Is. And that may be something that the officer didn't feel was relevant, but the defendant might be arguing something that's relevant about it. So as long as it's relevant to the case, then I'll generally let them ask. Um, yes? I have a question regarding the prior, the previous statement about the officer showing the notes, mm -hmm. and if they're on his computer, he shows the notes, the guy reads them, how do you write them as evidence? They're read into the record, so they would be recorded on, on the recording. You don't have to physically put the notes in as long as they read them in. Oh, so a few words, he doesn't have to just look at them, but he has to read them. Well, he can look at them, and if he wants to say, well, in your notes, officer, does it say 
you know, Mr. Smith was a complete idiot. Isn't that what it says there? And then the officer would say that, and then it's in the record. Let me rephrase my question. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm having a difficult time with this for a reason. Okay. The officer shows this tablet. There's all these notes are there. Mm -hmm. Okay. The uh, <coughs> looks at them. Whatever happens, okay. The defendant appeals. Can that be? A, can that? You know, there's no evidence that was entered. There was nothing that was entered. Right. The guy didn't read them. He just looked at them. He just looked at them? Okay. Well, it's not something that the judge would know about then because it's not something that the judge would have been told. So it's not something the judge would base their decision on. So if yeah, you words, then... Yeah, I, I get what... We're, uh, your concern is that is anything... Would you that read is, them in? No, your concern is anything that's offered into evidence has to be taken in um, and made part of the record. The difference here is the officer wasn't introducing his note. He, he wasn't asking that his notes be admitted into the record. He was just referring to them, and the defendant wants to see them. So he's not offering to make his notes an exhibit. Right. That's the difference. Okay. Got it. Thank what, you. What if the defendant wants to it, have it, it? Then he'd have to find a way to do it. Right. He'd have to have a find, a find a way either to print them or my suggestion would be just have them read them into the record. Well, they're yes. read into the record anyway. Well, right. he's saying if he just looked at it yeah. and, didn't, and didn't actually read it. So then I would say if the defendant wants it wants it to be part of the record, then they need to read it in. Okay. Okay, so here and here. Okay, then how do, you, how do you deal with hearsay issue? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay, yes. Ken, can the hearing officers suggest it's not in the record, but if you want the record, you have to do something? Is that improper, showing improper bias to one side? Well, no, because okay, like so I said, you can give general information okay. as far as the procedure. So what I would do is, you know, if the person is saying, well, I want to see their notes, they get a chance to look at them. And then if they say, well, judge, you know, he's made statements in these notes that I think are important that should be part of the record, then I would say, okay, well, then you can have the officer read and read it and, and make it part of the record. Yeah, that's what I was going to say in the answer to the question. It's, there's nothing in the record. If someone looks at the notes and doesn't think to say, well, in your notes it says this, if they don't, if they say, okay, I looked at his notes and don't ask about it, it's not an issue. Yeah, it's so not an issue because, I mean, if that. there's nothing on their notes, because sometimes the officers will just have nothing but, you know, stop at 7th Street and Jefferson, uh, you know, radar and nothing else. I mean, it, it'll be very, there'll just be a few words which really don't matter. So they won't ask for the notes to be entered. Thank you. Sure. All right, so let's see here. Okay, testimony. Um, all of the testimony of all witnesses must be given under oath. So you wanna make sure that you do put everyone under oath. Um, defendants who cite a religious objection can be asked to affirm that everything they say will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Um, if they refuse to affirm, then they can't testify. You need to have some sort of inclination that what they are saying is going to be true. I yes. refuse to testify. That's fine. They don't have to testify. So if they refuse to testify, then that's... So how do you handle the case? Well, I tell them, I say, well, sir, if you're refusing to testify, is there anything else that you want to present for your defense? Well, I'm asking, is there anything else that you would like to present for your defense? Okay, so you don't want to present anything. All right, so the defense rests. 
there having been no defense, there's no rebuttal, so then that concludes the case, and then I would make the decision based on what's been told at that point. How would, well, how would you decide that? Depends on what's been told. <laughs> if the officer has established all of the elements, um, if it's been established by a preponderance of the evidence, then, then I would make my ruling. The defendant doesn't have to testify. They don't have to prove their innocence or that they're not responsible. The officer has to prove it. So it really doesn't matter if the defendant testifies or not. Can they ask questions? So they can still ask questions, yes. Okay. Yes. And that would have already happened because you've given an them an opportunity first because that's part of the procedure first. Then once the state's case has rested, then you go to the defense. And then if the, the defendant says, no, I don't want to say anything, I'll still ask them, is there anything else you want to present? Because maybe they have pictures, maybe they have something else that they want to present. If they don't, then case ends. Would you, would you allow that in if they don't swear to tell the truth or If they're just presenting a document or a photo or something, yes. Okay, here. I would just, uh, uh, and I'm sure other uh, hearing officers or judges can testify that. I mean, I think that there's a perspective that a lot of times the defendant has no defense. They're just banking on the officer not coming. Yeah. When they're there, or they, they just sit there, there and they have nothing to say. They, they, right. you know, they, they, they were upset at the officer because he was a jerk. Right. Well, it wasn't even they were upset. They just, they, you know, they're taking their chances. They figure, I've already used driving school. What do I have to lose? If but the, the whole point. Come, I win, and if they show up, I got nothing to say yeah, anyway. Exactly. I know worse off. I'll pay my fine and go home. Right. But the point is that you've offered them the chance. Right. No. I'm just saying. That's so and that's what you want to have on the record, and you want to have it clearly on the record that you offered them the opportunity to testify. They didn't want to testify. You offered them the opportunity to present any other evidence, and they declined to do that. So then that covers you. Right. <laughs> Okay, yes. So then that means that if they decide that they're going to refuse to uh, even take the oath or even affirm anything, mm -hmm. um, you are still going to allow them to ask questions? They have the right to ask questions because that's part of their right to cross-examine. So like I said, in the procedure, the state's case happens first. So when the officer testifies and you would then ask them if they want to ask questions, that's not testimony. Okay, so they can ask their questions and then the state concludes their case. At that point, you then move to the defendant's part of the case. At that point, that's when you ask them, do you want to testify? If they want to testify, then they have to either be sworn in or they have to affirm. If they refuse to do that, then I explain to them, if you will not take an oath or you will not affirm, then I cannot accept your testimony. So therefore, you can't make a ruling for the defendant, correct? You can, yes. If the officer has not established the, the elements, you can make a ruling for the defendant even if the defendant but hasn't raised that anything. The defendant doesn't, you don't know whether he's telling the truth or not. not because the defendant doesn't have to prove anything. So let's say the, the officer... Didn't meet the burden. Right. So let's say the officer, it's a, it's a speeding charge, and the officer gives you no information about the calibrations of their radar unit, gives you no information at all about the speed limit. Defendant doesn't have to say anything at all because the officer hasn't established their case. So, and the, the defendant may know that, and that's why they don't want to say anything. Yeah, what I'm surmising <laughs> is that you give them the oath at the specific time that it is for them to testify. Most, at least I do. I swear them in at the beginning. I, I actually do swear them in at the beginning. So when you have someone who is an objector, 
they will let you know that right from the beginning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so then that's when I explain to them that, well, if they don't want to testify, that's fine. Um, but if they do want to testify, then they will have to take an oath or an affirmation. And obviously, when they're asking questions, they're going to throw their two cents in and somewhat testify. That's when you separate that. Right. Okay. You separate that out because they can only ask questions. Okay. Isn't it true? Yeah. And, and they can make arguments as well. Even if they don't testify, they can make arguments, but they can't say, well, I wasn't doing this, 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 or that. That's testimony. Okay, if they're giving their facts, then that's testimony. All right. Um, and I was talking about that. You can, you can swear in the witnesses as a group at the beginning, or you can do each witness individually. It's up to your preference. There's nothing in the rules that indicates anything. Um, just have to make sure that they are sworn in. So what do you do if you realize during the hearing that you forgot to administer the oath? Has anyone ever had that happen? I have. What did you do? Stopped immediately and said, I forgot to administer the oath. Raise your right hand, swear yes. in and say, now, have you told me everything you told me so far? Is it the truth? You say, yes, I'm not going to repeat it. Yeah. So as soon as you notice it, stop, correct it, you know, and then and have them readopt and have them readopt what they've said. Yeah, um, I actually did that as well. One of my, you know, first experiences. I realized after it was all over um, <coughs> that I hadn't, and so I said, okay, everyone, please read. <laughs> Do you swear or affirm that everything you have said during this hearing was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And then I asked them if there was anything they wanted to add, just in case. And so you can correct it. Okay. Now, let's say hearing's done, you've given your ruling, parties have left, and then your clerk tells you, Judge, I don't think you swore people in. <gasps> now you're in trouble. <laughs> There's nothing you can do to correct it after that. Once the hearing's done, once everybody's gone, you well, just you've hope. you've made a ruling. Too. And you've made a ruling, so you just have to hope that they don't appeal it, because if they do, that's going to be coming back. <laughs> you just have to confess your error at that point. Obviously, you want to make a note of it, though. Right. Um, so that's why, especially for those of us that are starting out, I always make sure that I have a checklist and that's on there, swear in witnesses, um, so that you can remind yourself. Also, um, you know, depending on your relationship with your bailiff or your clerk, um, my, my clerks and my bailiffs are usually really good about saying, you know, judge, <laughs> Yeah, a lot of justice courts don't have anybody in the court. Oh, okay. Yeah, so then I would definitely make sure that I have a checklist there, you know, until you get it as part of your routine. All right. Um, another unique feature, uh, at least for the state of Arizona, is that uh, hearing officers can call and examine witnesses, um, including the defendant, on its own motion. So we add, because we are the trier of facts, um, just like jurors are allowed to ask questions in criminal cases, um, as the trier of facts, we are allowed to ask questions as well. Now, the only thing with that is you want to be very careful. Um, you want to be careful that you don't sound like you're cross-examining the witness or the officer um, or the defendant. And you want to make sure that you're not advocating for one side or the other. So essentially, you want to keep your questions um, as general as possible. And you want to try and make sure that they're really just to clarify things. Or you know, if there's something really in your mind that you just haven't, you didn't hear, um, then ask those kinds of questions. But if you find that you think you might be leaning one way or the other, don't do that. Don't advocate one way or the other. Okay. 
I'm going to throw myself under the bus. What if you say, I have, I need to clarify, did you say this? You can do that. Like, you can do that. did you identify him as the driver? <laughs> now, are you doing it because you really didn't hear it, or you're doing it because well, you're trying to help him? Or you're trying to help him? You don't want to help him. Yeah. So there we're going to have to look at what's your intent in asking the question. Um, I have, you know, I have a, a big courtroom. Some of the courtrooms I've seen uh, around the state are much smaller. Ours is huge. And I've got people that are so far away from me and they're talking like this or they might be covering themselves or, you know, they're nervous and so they've got their finger in their mouth. And I can't hear what they say, so I'll ask them to repeat it. Um, and sometimes I'll have people who are talking so fast, especially the officers, because, uh, well, on February 4, 2019, I was on routine patrol at 7th Street, and, you know, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute, what, when was this? <laughs> so that, that's fine to ask those clarifying questions. That's absolutely fine. Okay? Um, so again, just make sure that you remain neutral, avoid the appearance of representing either side. Um, questioning is best restricted to asking for clarifications of facts or issues. Interpreters. All right. So um, it is a due process right to have an interpreter provided if one is requested. Um, it is reversible error if an interpreter is not provided. So if someone asks you for an interpreter, even though you think they speak perfect English, if they ask for an interpreter, provide them with an interpreter. Because otherwise, if they appeal it, it's going to be coming back. Um, Arizona rules indicate that a judge cannot conduct proceedings in a language other than English, so even if you are completely proficient in speaking Spanish, which I know Judge Medina is, um, can't do official, <laughs> Judge McCurry's like, oh, I don't know about that, um, you, you can't do any official proceedings in uh, any other language other than English. Um, I do recommend placing the interpreters under oath at the beginning of the hearing, um, particularly if they're not any of your court interpreters or staff interpreters. If you get someone who is a contract interpreter um, and you have no idea how, how much experience they have in the court, um, it just gives them a little bit more of the formality and lets them realize you know, or, or remember that they are there only to interpret the words spoken. They're not supposed to try and advocate for the person or assist the person. Yes? What happens if uh, an interpreter is requested, the interpreter is there, and then the defendant says, well, you know, I really cannot hear what's going on because you're talking and the interpreter is talking at the same time, and I can do what better if the interpreter, we let the interpreter go. That, and that's up to the defendant. That's their choice. But you want to make sure that you, that you keep a good record of that that they are making the decision that they don't want an interpreter. Um, the other thing that you can do is rather than having a simultaneous interpretation, now this is going to delay your proceedings, but you can do it where you know you don't have multiple people talking at the same time. Well, the thing is that some of the, some of the interpreters, that's the way they prefer to do it, and right. the they do it, that's the only way. They, they know both ways. They, they know both ways. But, they can do it both you know, ways. That's my, so, but in any event, I had one case where the the gentleman says, well, yeah, I want to go away with the interpreter. And I asked him two or three times, you know, you want to, are you sure this is what you want to do? Okay. I recommend you don't do it. You know, you selected one, you know, if you have requested it, it was given to you, please take advantage of it. No, you don't Two seconds later, two minutes later, I don't understand. And I said, sir, I'm sorry, but this, you know, you were advised, you were offered, the interpreter is gone, 
Right. Nothing else we can do. Right. Um, the only thing I would suggest in that kind of issue is maybe have the interpreter just stay there on standby, just in case. Because sometimes people will try to, you know, they, they get embarrassed about the fact that they have to have an interpreter or they think that it's going to look uh, negative towards them. And so they want to try to represent themselves or try to, to do it in English. And then they realize that they've gotten in over their head and they really can't do it. Um, so I've had that where I just have the interpreter stand by. Most of our hearings are only, you know, 15 minutes long. So it's not really going to be that much of an issue for the interpreter to just sit there in case something like that comes up. Yes. Following on that, I've had circumstances where the defendant, as they start speaking, you hear a strong accent. And better still, it's clear that English isn't their first language. Mm -hmm. And I actually, on the motion of the court, continued the hearing yes. and insisted on getting an interpreter for that party. So, right. okay to do? That's okay to do, yes. Or they don't know yes. that they can advocate for themselves in that respect. Right. Sometimes they're not aware that they that they can request an interpreter. Um, you know, especially if they sent in their request for a hearing date by mail and then they just came in and they don't realize that they needed to get an interpreter. Um, or, you know, once the testimony starts and they start hearing these legal words and they don't understand them, um, then, you know, they might be feeling like they, they need an interpreter. Um, or I've had that as well where I see somebody that's just saying, yes, yes, yes. And I'm like, I'm getting the, the feeling that they don't understand. Um, but then also if they're testifying and I can't understand them, then I'll explain that as well. Is that, you know, I'm having a difficult time understanding you. I think it might be better if we get an interpreter here so I can make sure that I'm understanding everything that you are explaining. And then you can reset the case. A couple times I've had them bring relatives, friends, whatever. <laughs> it's one of Charles's scenarios. <laughs> okay, then I'll ask it. Uh, and they want, I, I brought so-and-so here to, you know, to be my interpreter. I'll ask him, and are you official interpreter? Sorry, and, well, no, no. <laughs> okay. I just reset them. <laughs> yeah. And actually, for hearings, um, we do have an administrative order from the Arizona Supreme Court um, that preference is to be given to certified interpreters. Right. Um, so, you know, we can hang our hat on that, that the, the court rules say, the Supreme Court says, you have to have a certified interpreter, can't use a friend, family member, etc. neighbor. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, we're going to go into that more with uh, Charles' scenario, too. So I don't want to steal his thunder. All right. Um, there are some unique interpreter situations which could occur. Um, for saying language, um, there is actually, uh, under the uh, ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, certified uh, or sign language interpreters do have to be certified. Um, and that's been in existence for years. Um, so those individuals are very, very proficient, very fast, and they'll be able to keep up with you with no problems. Um, if you have a hearing impaired individual who does not sign, um, there are other interpreters such as certified lip readers. Um, there is also relay uh, where they type everything that's being said so the defendant can actually read what's being said and then the defendant would type the information back and have it written into the record. Um, so they come in set up with laptops and things like that if you have to do relay. Um, one thing that I did learn as well is that sign language comes in different languages. There is American Sign Language, there is Spanish Sign Language, there is Mandarin Sign Language. Um, so just make sure that you do know what type of sign language you need. 
um, and your court officials, whoever it is that's in charge of that, will make sure that you get the appropriate interpreter. Now, do you, I don't know what Phoenix does, but I know in our courtrooms we have, um, you know, they're hard of hearing or whatever, we have amplifiers. The and you can use that as well. I mean, there's a difference between someone who's hearing impaired that needs a sign language interpreter or a relay or, or lip reader and someone who's just a little hard of hearing and just needs the amplification. Um, some of our, our system, I know if they have hearing aids, it will actually cause interference. Um, so they'll put the earphones on and then you get that squelch, you know, that high-pitched squelch. Um, so sometimes you have to kind of work with that a little. Just, just be patient. Um, and then, you know, try to do what you can to accommodate them. I, I had one individual that no matter what we did, he could not hear. We, we tried this assistant devices, we tried a couple of different ones, and nothing worked other than him coming right in front of my bench and me essentially yelling so that he could hear. But we got through it. <laughs> so just be patient. Am I correct that once you start with an interpreter, you have to direct the party? Don't answer until you've got the interpretation, even though they may yes. be somewhat perfect. Yes, and, and your interpreters will actually tell you that as well because it makes it very difficult for them when people are talking over. Um, and so I just make it very, very clear to the individual that they have to wait until the interpreter has stopped and then they can begin their answer. Um, and I, I tell them it's because everything is being recorded and we need to make sure that we have a clear record. And they have to answer in the other language. Okay. Right, you don't want them mixing it up back and forth, English, Spanish, English, Spanish, or English, French, um, because again, your interpreters will have a very difficult time um, with trying to make sure that they're keeping an accurate record of that. Um, for uncommon or exotic languages, um, you know, we have, in, in Arizona, we have a lot of refugee communities, um, and so we will get a lot of individuals that speak languages other than Spanish. Uh, Spanish is, is the predominant uh, foreign language, but you will get individuals who speak Somalian. You will get individual who, individuals who speak uh, Karani, um, individuals who speak Chuck, uh, you know, um, some other uh, uh, small and languages, dialects. and different dialects as well. Um, so fortunately, because we do have um, great uh, uh, location here um, we can actually get some of the interpreters through the federal court um, there's a lot of different um, resources that are used um, so I've only had a couple of instances in my entire 12 years and I would say less than five times where our court interpreters office has said judge we've tried to locate an interpreter and we cannot find one um, and if that happens then you can't proceed with the case. The case ends up getting dismissed, particularly in civil traffic, because it's not, it's not a criminal matter. It's not a matter of life or death. If you can't provide an interpreter and you've exhausted all possible resources, then the case just gets dismissed. Um, but like I said, that has happened maybe, I think, two or three times in my career where they just can't find anyone at all for this language. Would you not, in a situation like that, would you not ask the police officer how did you understand this movie? Yeah, and sometimes the officers just don't even communicate with them at the scene. You know, they just write the ticket. Yeah, so you may, they may have been able to converse, they may not. But either way, like we said, it's, it's actually a due process right under the Constitution. So if they need an interpreter or if they want an interpreter, then you should be providing one. Yes, sir. If a person is unable to communicate or understand it a certain language, 
because that that's not it's almost like you give them an out for not understanding if they can pass the, the driving test and they should be able to be proficient in something if if they have a driver's license <laughs> but you can't always you can't always bank on that well i know i know we can't take either side state or the individual however it just seems like you know it just gives the takes away from the effective law that the person get away from with it for um, not merely understanding. And, and you have the same issues with that with competency. You know, if somebody is not mentally competent to be able to stand trial, even if they killed someone, they can't stand trial. It's just part of the due process constitutional rights that, that are just fundamental. So, um, but you know, sometimes do people use it for their advantage? Do they pretend that they don't understand you know, I'm sure there are, there's, there's many of those cases, but we have to do what the process tells us. No, no they wouldn't lie. No, of course not. <laughs> um, Can I ask a question on Charles? Charles, oh. when we, in civil traffic hearing officer, or trials, could we call the language line? Yep. Yes. You are so far ahead of the game. <laughs> um, so yes, uh, even though we do have that directive from the Supreme Court that we are to use certified interpreters and the pre preferences for that, um, the use of the language line is approved. Um, it is basically deemed that their interpreters are certified even under our rules, even though most of them aren't here in Arizona. I think most of them are in other states. Um, but yes, you can, you can use the language line. Um, you can use it for hearings. You can use it for anything that you'd like that's completely appropriate. Um, See, the, the third bullet point there, I didn't address that. If you're unable to determine the defendant's language, um, try to at least find out what country they're from um, because at least then, you know, you'll, you'll give your interpreter's office a little bit of an idea. Um, but even when you call the language line, I mean, the first thing when they say, you know, good afternoon, language line, what, what language do you need? If you don't know, then it's really not going to be very much help to call the language line. You've got to at least try and find out what language you need. Um, and like, and like uh, you brought up as well, there may be different dialects, there may be something else. Um, we had an individual who spoke some sort of dialect of Creole. Um, I believe he was from Haiti. And we couldn't find anyone, even language line couldn't help, but he spoke, he understood French. And so we were able to get by with a French interpreter. It was close enough. Okay. All right. Um, also, you would just want to make sure that you are sensitive to cultural issues. Remember, there are things that are going on in other parts of the world that may affect a person's perspective here. Um, for example, when they had the Bosnian-Serbian uh, um, conflicts, uh, don't want to order a Serbian interpreter for a Bosnian <laughs> defendant. They may not get along and they may not want to talk to each other. Um, we also had that come up, I had personally that come up with an Arabic individual who did not want a female to speak for him. And, you know, it's like, well, okay, I understand he doesn't want to, but she was very uncomfortable as well, so it was a lot easier to just reset it and order another interpreter. Okay. All right, um, as far as questioning the competency or accuracy of the interpretation, um, I'm sure we've all seen those comedy skits where somebody's talking and talking and talking and talking, and the answer is yes, and then talking and talking and talking and talking, and the answer is no. <laughs> Uh, so if you feel that the competency of the interpreter is questionable or if you feel that they may not be giving an accurate interpretation, stop where you are 
and ask the defendant if they understand everything that's been going on so far. You can make an inquiry of the interpreter. You can even ask them what is their experience, how long have they been interpreting, um, and you can tell them, you know, well, Madam Interpreter, I get a sense that you may not be interpreting everything that I'm saying. Do you, are you interpreting everything? Um, and, and, you know, I've had individuals that say, no, I'm sorry, you're going too fast, and I, I can't keep up. I'm only getting about half of it. And, that, and then I'll tell them, well, if that's the case, then please tell me to slow down. I'll be happy to slow down. Or tell me to repeat something. Um, but if you get that sense, definitely stop and inquire and see what you can do to correct it. And, and you do have to watch the interpreter, because uh, I've had to, on numerous occasions, remind the interpreter you have to interpret everything I say, mm -hmm. including what I'm saying right now. Right. Uh, and then you, uh, I had one a couple weeks ago, I think it was Ukrainian, where I at least 12 times said no side conversations. You can't be having side conversations with, with the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you'll get that as well, when you see them talking and you know the officer is testifying and they're just over here having their own conversation stop and say excuse me are you interpreting and if so then you need to let the defendant know they need to pay attention you shouldn't be talking while the testimony is being taken that's all here and just a comment um your joke about da -da -da -da. i did that that happened to me as an arbiter of navajo reservation the other side spoke navajo and i said is that correct and they said yes hmm. And it could be, it could be. Um, you know, sometimes the translations are just different. It's different speeds, different rhythms, um, different contexts in the, in the language. So sometimes it could be, but you just want to make sure. Um, particularly, I'll, I'll kind of just look at the demeanor of the defendant. If they just kind of look like the deer in the headlights, like they don't know what's being said, then chances are they don't understand the interpreter and maybe you've got a wrong dialect or a wrong language. Um, also, I've had the luck of having individuals who bring family members with them, and the family member will stand up and say, wait a minute, they're speaking the wrong language, they don't understand. Um, so that's been fortunate as well. And if that's the case, then you know, just stop the proceeding. Um, if you've already begun the hearing, you can declare it as a, a mistrial, essentially, and then reset it. Okay, yes. Oh, I'm sorry, let me, let me go over here first. You can move the interpreter. I mean, I've had situations where you're getting a sense of dialogue, and I just told the interpreter to go sit in the witness stand. They don't have to sit next to the person. Well, and, and that, that way you get them, you cut off the cross-conversation, and then they're just sitting there interpreting. Right, and that just depends on your layout of your, of your building and, and your courtroom and everything like that. Um, also, some of our interpreters use the headsets with the little microphones, and so I can't even really tell what's being said because I can't hear it. They're just speaking directly into the microphone. So. I really have no idea, unless the defendant tells me they don't understand. So, yes, sir. Many years ago, um, it was allowed to, for the more common interpretation of Spanish specifically, mm -hmm. um, we're allowed to use a staff member and did way back in the day. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not the rules anymore. Right. But, and, you know, because oftentimes the language line can take some time. Take some time. To get through and all that kind of thing. You know, several emails back and forth from staff to them. On and on and on. Um, would it ever be beneficial to utilize staff again? Uh, if if there was a specific person or two in staff that you know took a test or whatever they had to do to qualify to utilize them, that way they're right there. And another part of that is, you know, oftentimes staff is used for Spanish specifically 
um, at the windows mm -hmm. when folks come up. So just throwing that out there and curious if that would be beneficial. Right, and, and that's going to be up to the administrative orders of your particular court. Um, and like, for example, in our court, you know, the staff can be used for what they call ministerial functions, like the functions at the windows, or if they're just coming in to get a continuance for defensive driving class or something like that. But specifically for the hearings, because the hearings are on the record, the Supreme Court administrative order says that for the hearings, if something's going to be under oath, the preference should be to, an, to a court-certified interpreter. Um, but it does say preference, so, you know, if you can't find an interpreter or you don't have an interpreter, and your court has deemed that this individual is to whatever the administrative order is. Okay. All right, um, dealing with difficult people. Uh, you can definitely encounter defendants or witnesses who are difficult to deal with. Um, <laughs> no, I know it's shopping, Judge and Perry. Um, you know, particularly in civil traffic hearings because you don't have the benefit of having attorneys there to control the proceedings and control their clients or control their officer. Um, I had a couple of weeks ago a uh, parking hearing with an attorney who was representing himself and a parking officer and they literally got you know into it with yelling back and forth and i'm sitting there yelling at them too saying gentlemen 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 and i thought i was literally gonna have to like you know i don't have a gavel so i was like do i have a book like something that i can slam because they were just at each other's necks and finally, I was able to, you know, control the situation, and I admonished both of them. Um, the parking officer very quickly apologized to the court and, you know, was able to, to calm himself down. Uh, the attorney didn't do it that quickly, but he did, toward the end of the proceeding, apologize for his behavior. Um, but you will see it come out, even uh, out of the most professional-looking, upstanding, otherwise completely calm and polite people, uh, for some reason, they come in for a traffic ticket, and they are more riled up than anything. You would have think someone would have, you know, said that they had to turn over their firstborn or something. Yeah. Um, then, particularly with parking. Well, I was going to say I used to see it all the time in photo radar. Yeah, so. photo radar as well. It's not as much now. I think people have gotten a little more, bit more acclimated to it, and it's time has just kind of calmed people down. Um, but if you get someone who, you know, prides himself on being a law-abiding citizen with a perfectly clean record, give them a parking ticket and boom, they go through the roof. Um, so you will have difficult times, difficult people to deal with. Um, most important thing is for you to remain calm. Uh, remain calm, protect the integrity of the process. Uh, make sure that you keep a good record. Um, and if you find that you're finding yourself getting upset or angry, Take a recess. Take a recess, give yourself a break, get away from the situation, um, and then once you've calmed yourself down and hopefully the parties have calmed themselves down, then go back in and resume the proceeding. Um, try to keep the proceedings as controlled as civil as possible, and if that means giving people reminders over and over again about how this is a courtroom, this, you know, we do have to maintain a sense of decorum, we have to make sure that we are staying to the procedure, um, and definitely make sure that you keep your record going. If it all chaos is going on, your bailiff should keep that recording going, if nothing else but to cover you. Because you don't want someone saying, well, the judge did this or the judge did that, and then you go to the recording and it's blank. <laughs> okay? And, and our staff are specifically told, keep the recording going until we tell them to turn it off. Even if everybody's left the building, or not the building, but everyone's left the courtroom, 
I'll look and I still see the numbers rolling. I'm like, oh, we can go off the record. She's like, okay, I was just waiting for you to tell me. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's, it's there to protect you. Um, okay, burden of proof. We all know preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not, is the burden of proof in the civil traffic hearings. Um, elements that the state must establish in every single case, date, time, location, jurisdiction, and the specific elements for each violation, so each uh, count on the complaint. Can I stop you on the jurisdiction? Sure. What if it's like, and we'll see it a lot in justice courts where, you know, it's a freeway, one side is one, you know, precinct, other side is another precinct. Okay. It may be in that other precinct. What I've done is had them, you know, the defendant agree to are you okay with us proceeding today, even though it's technically in, this in the other precinct? And and for that, I'll have to refer to Charles. Is because that another question, Charles? You know, and actually, if you, if you ask the recorder's office if the line is directly down the middle of the road, they actually will waffle and say we're not that specific. So, um, I think you're fine. You just proceed. Yeah, because I mean, the jurisdiction would be Maricopa County. Yeah, the jurisdiction of Maricopa okay. County, and and ours, you know, because we're city of Phoenix, we have to specifically indicate that it's within the city limits of Phoenix. Um, but you know, jurisdiction, you just have to make sure that the court has jurisdiction to handle that case. Yes. Well, I mean, wasn't there a case where they actually established a one-mile rule, anyways? I mean, to address his issue, that they said that if the offense was in one mile of the jurisdictional boundary, it's still considered. You can still hear the case. You can still hear the case. Well, and what, again, what, because you've got cross jurisdictions, I'll, I'll I'm not aware of a one mile rule, but what generally happens is in a situation like this, the person drove to get there. So at some point, the violation <coughs> probably occurred in, in any of the pre, or, you know, in either precinct. So you can always rule out did any part of this offense take place in that precinct? Well, that, right. I mean, that, the, that, was an appeal case and that that's basically what they were saying they were saying is that that within a mile so if you stop if the, if the fence occurred here and you stopped it here then the fence was in was in the, the jurisdiction of the court yeah well the stop of the where the stop occurs doesn't matter for jurisdiction if somebody commits a violation in Phoenix and then they drive to Tempe and the officer stops them in Tempe Phoenix, can still do Phoenix still hears it because the offense occurred in Phoenix. So I, I'm not. I've never heard about the one mile thing either. Just generally, and I only know, I don't know how this one turned out, but Judge Melton was doing a case with Judge Russell, and apparently the events occurred over a number of different precincts, mm -hmm. and there were stops on them. Oh, so I don't know. I, I never knew if that that's ever been resolved as to what precinct has jurisdiction. What precinct? And, and because and that's a, more of a precinct issue, that's why I said and I, and I was in Judge Huber uh, watching her one day, and she knew that the mile marker was wrong. Mm. And she said, it's not in this jurisdiction. You know, so I don't know if we, they put the wrong highway down, because she has both the 101 and the 10. And so there may have been an error there. But I guess she just had to continue it. Okay. I'm going to say something, and I don't actually know if I'm right, but I think I'm going to point to where it gets confusing here. Okay. If it's a criminal charge, it, I do not have jurisdiction to hear a criminal charge, a DUI case, that took place in outside my jurisdiction. Correct. Correct. But civil, at least in civil litigation, 
I can hear a case that happened in Maricopa County unless somebody objects to venue. Right. And I'm wondering if that carries over to civil traffic. And, and that's where I would say that, you know, because my jurisdiction is City of Phoenix, um, you know, ours are very clear-cut boundaries. It's either in the city limits or not in the city limits. But when you're talking about a county that's divided into precincts, I don't know how that how that would go. So I would defer. To I know you I know it's not that. criminal, but I I, right. I think you might be able to hear it. I, I would think so because jurisdiction just means the jurisdiction of the court. So the jurisdiction would be the county of Maricopa, right? Because it's the Maricopa County Justice Court. It's not necessarily how it's divided into precincts for um, you know efficiency purposes. Um, but but if it's criminal. Not only can I can't hear it, I also can't transfer it. Right. I have to dismiss it. You have to dismiss it, and then they've got to refile it in the proper proper jurisdiction. So, yes, here and then here. I want to ask a question regarding what should be self-evident, but has presented certain uh, questions itself, and that being identification. Okay. Uh, two, I'll pose two scenarios. We usually think of identification as the simple thing where the officer looks to his left or her left and cites the party sitting at the defense table as the party to whom he or she issued the citation. The party's got a blue shirt and black pants or she's wearing a red dress. Right. And that's 99% of the time. But identification issues have come up in my courts where in one case, now they just totally miss it, they miss it now. I've heard some people say you can correct that by, by the way, he's already seated at the uh, table over there. That's a little question. That's because a little now you're advocating. Right. But the question that came up uh, a couple times recently is the officer is reading directly from his notes. And he goes right on down the line and he cites the jurisdiction, the location, the time, and the other elements. And he said, and the party seated uh, to the left of me is the party to whom I issued the citation, but continues reading right on down, never turns his head never does anything that identifies that he has any concept of who's sitting to his left. If he just goes right on down and rattles everything off, is that identification? Even though he said the party at the defense table is the party to whom I issued the citation, but doesn't do anything to acknowledge that he knows who's there? That he knows who's there? That's, that's up to you. I mean, you can clarify that because, again, you know, before you come out, you would assume that the parties have been sitting there in the courtroom, um, that they may have seen each other ahead of time, and maybe the officer just doesn't want to look at the defendant because they've got some other, you know, there was some other kind of issues going on, some personality issues. Um, so, you know, they may have just seen them when they walked into the court building. They may have seen them when they walked into the courtroom. You don't know. But if you want to question that even further, you can. Um, if you don't think that the officer has actually even looked, you can ask that. Okay, the other scenario actually occurred last week where I had an officer giving all the elements except on identification. He never said that the party seated at the defense table is the one to whom I issued the citation. But he kept looking over at the person and he clearly knew who was sitting there, but right. never said it. But never said it. Um, and that's where you say it's, that's, you know, it's, it's questionable because some judges I know will say, you know, and officer, the person you issued the citation to, are they in the courtroom today? Um, and they're comfortable with doing that. Some judges are not comfortable with doing that because it's one of the essential elements. Um, if you have someone who's pointing and saying, well, that, you know, when I stopped him, he told me, you can make a record of that. Let the record reflect the officer is pointing to the individual seated at the other table. 
um, you know, then, I mean, but they, because they are identifying them through their physical actions. Precisely. Yeah. So, and you can just state that for the record so that it's clear. This, and no problem with that. Yes. It wasn't me, it was my twin brother. Yeah, we get that all the time with photo enforcement. Yeah, we get that with photo enforcement. Um, and so, you know, I mean, if they have a twin brother and then legitimately show that they have a twin brother, then that's something that you can take into consideration. Because um, then you know, they may have an issue of a false identification. You know, they might possibly have some possible criminal charges brought up for false information. <laughs> um, yeah, we've, we've had that, like I said, especially with photo enforcement. Um, they'll bring in pictures of their sister, brother, whoever. I had one with two sisters, mm -hmm. and she said it wasn't me, it was my sister. Mm -hmm. And the officer said no, it was her. How did you identify? By the tattoo that she got on her shoulder that she got on her right hand. Right, right. Now, our procedure is when people come into arraignment and they tell us, no, I didn't get this, somebody used my name or whatever, we will refer them to the police department to file a, a theft ID report. Um, and if they don't follow through with that process, then that gives us a little bit of an inclination as to whether or not they're just making it up. Um, but if they have gone through with the process and then the detectives come in and say, yes, this was someone else, then they will dismiss or they will request a dismissal. So let me go over here and then to you. I think just back to um, the comment about if you miss an identification or not look at the person over there. You know, sometimes if it's an officer you're familiar with who is really typically on it and, you know, there's never any deviations, I think sometimes at the end of the case, whichever way you decide, you can just simply remind the officer on the way out, you know, officer, you know, next time be aware of identification or something like that just to put that little bug in there that you were aware that they missed that little piece of the right. puzzle. Right, and I'll usually say that in my ruling, because um, I don't like, again, want to try to avoid ex parte, want to try to avoid looking like you're assisting one or the other, um, so I'll state it on the record in my ruling oh, yeah. that, you know, in the, in the hearing the officer did not establish identification, and then they'll usually go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, trust yeah. me, as soon as you say that, little, little, right. yeah. they won't forget that. Right, right. Um, now what I also do, and I do this with everyone, um, I also always give everyone an opportunity to add anything. So I always tell at the end of their testimony, anything else. Is there anything else that you want to say? And normally I'll have the officers kind of review their notes or, you know, they'll look at it to see if they think they forgot something or not. Um, and if they forget it, they forget it. You know, I've had veteran officers who I've had to, to just, you know, find a person not responsible because they didn't say it occurred in the city of Phoenix. And as soon as I say it in my ruling, they're like, yeah, you got me. I'm tired. I've been up all night, you know. <laughs> I have a question for you. How would you uh, handle... Okay, and then we have another one back there. Sorry. How would you handle a case where you have twins and the officer says, I'm 100% sure that that was the person I gave the picture? It's a preponderance of the evidence. So, you know, if, if you think it's more likely than not that it is that individual, then that's the, what the ruling is going to be. Um, if you have a question and you think, you know, yeah, maybe it's really not them, then that's what the ruling will be as well. It's, it's, it's a very low standard, so it could go either way. Yes, sir? My question is from being impartial. I said on the case where um, the officer explained that he, he cited an individual going 20 miles over the speed limit um, by using uh, pacing. Okay. He said he paced, he paced him by blah, 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 blah. Uh, my concern came about because at no point did he identify 
was his vehicle certified? Because he could have said, you know, if he used radar, that certified. But how do you know? But am I, you know, and the reason why I'm uncomfortable with, you know, exploring that is the fact that it appears like I'm doing, I'm working for the state. Okay. So how do I, you know, or how do I, or, or where do I stand in a situation where the officer does not show that, that the vehicle that was doing the, the That the speedometer was calibrated? It was calibrated certified. Now, remember, the officers are trained, or at least it's presumed that they are trained. So they're supposed to know what information they're supposed to give in a hearing. So in that kind of situation, and I've had officers who've done that, um, you know, they give all their testimony. They don't say a thing at all about the calibrations or anything. Um, again, I will kind of give them a general question. Officer, what kind of vehicle were you in? And they'll say, you know, I was in a patrol vehicle, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, if they give me the calibration information and all of that, then that's fine. If they don't give me the calibration information, then I don't have any reliability about that, the accuracy of that speedometer. And so then in my ruling, I will say that. Again, that's, see, that's, that's where the, it's really delicate in as much as, um, you know. Your, your concern is the fact that you know that that information should be there and that they should be giving it, and you don't want to make it seem like you're trying to assist right. them by right. asking. Yeah. Right. Or, or, yeah. And, that's, and that's my concern, uh, because it's not my job to do that. Right, no, and it's not, and that's so, why I said but when somebody drives 20 miles over the speed limit and they're here, you know, and, and I mean, that's pretty much established based on everything else that the, the, the police officers, troopers done. I just, the back of my, there's something in my gut or whatever it says that finish it. Tell me about how, how do you know they were 20? Now, if they said plus or minus, you know, such and such, I can kind of live with that. But if you make no reference at all to how the vehicle is certified, so you know what you're speaking well, how come you're doing that? That becomes an issue. Yeah, and and that's the thing is, is if they haven't proven the case by preponderance of the evidence, if you've got that feeling in there that you just don't know how they established that it was 20 over, then they haven't established their case. That's just it. Okay. How would you? I had a case where the defendant said, well, how do I know his spotometer is correct and mine is not, or vice versa? And the officer says, well, my Ford Explorer was certified at the, at the factory. Now, uh, Charles, maybe you can answer this. Is there a law that says that the calibration must be done at a certain amount of time? No. Because the state of Pennsylvania is every 30 days. I don't yeah, know. I mean, generally, they're going to say, uh, they're going to provide that information, but um, this is going to be a burden of proof issue. And by the way, to the other gentleman, when you say that you're concerned that it may not be proven at 20 miles over the speed limit, that may very well be the case, um, but the defendant was still speeding. Uh, I mean, uh, it could have been speeding 18 miles over the speed limit. Now, you might lower the fine or whatever because you don't find it at 20, but just because you don't find that he's going exactly 20 miles over the speed limit doesn't mean he wasn't speeding. And I and I get I get your rationale and that's where I look at it, but it just I want I I like walking away feeling like I didn't have anything to do other than just look at the evidence and make a judgment. Not that I had to I had to superimpose some other information in order to make my decision. And that's and I, I wanna walk away with comfort feeling comfortable I did my job as opposed to I had to kind of move some things around to get to the end of it and that's that's just where I am. 
And it probably comes with more time sitting and doing some of these things where I'll feel more comfortable with it. Just, I felt uncomfortable with it. No, okay. You shouldn't have, it shouldn't be pulling teeth to get the information. Because like I said, the officers are presumed to be trained in what they're doing. With defendants, I can understand a little bit more that they don't really know what they should be saying or what they should be presenting. Um, but particularly for that, if they're telling you that they, they did a pace, um, they have to have some sort of information to, to verify the piece. So, okay, here and then. So are we assuming that the defendant has challenged? Suppose the defendant just sits there yeah. and doesn't do anything to challenge what the officer said, and though it would be nice to have it with a ribbon on it, a package, mm -hmm. you don't get the ribbon, but you still get the package, and the defendant is not objecting in any fashion or, right. or disputing it. So, even though... <coughs> You didn't get I was only going 15 over, not 20. Well, yeah, you don't know. <laughs> you, you don't know what he was doing, but if the defendant just sitting there kind of passive, uh, why be too concerned about how well the officer substantiated it? Right, and that's where Charles was saying that, you know, it's a burden of proof issue. If you feel that it's been established by a preponderance of the evidence, then you make your ruling. If you, if you feel that there are still questions about the validity and you don't feel comfortable asking further questions because you feel that that would be advocating for one side or the other, then I would say that in that case, the officer has not established it by a preponderance of the evidence. I can, I can, I can, I can look at that. Mm -hmm. I can. Yes. Yeah. Okay, did you say Yes, I'm, I'm still a little confused about the jurisdiction issue. Okay. I had an attorney, I had a case where the attorney shows up and asks the officer at one mile post did the offense occur. And he said, you know, come to my house. I said, okay, there's the map on the jurisdiction of this court. And this is outside the jurisdiction of this court. Okay. It was my first day by myself. <laughs> I tried to, I went to talk to the uh, court manager, and she very nicely, very politely said, that's your problem. If the evidence is showing you that it occurred outside of the jurisdiction, then you would be completely right to enter a not responsible based on jurisdiction. Which is what, which is what I did, but my confusion was that, you know, what I heard from, that there was some possibility mm -hmm. that even there wasn't the jurisdiction on the particular court since it was in the county. Did I misunderstand what was just said? Well, and that's why I said that that has to depend. That's outside of my area of expertise since I don't deal with precinct. That's the language um, problem. What yeah. did I say? Precinct <laughs> issues. No, not the language problem. It's just how Thank you, you. administrative handle administratively. I think if that happened to me, I would tell the attorney. I would say. Oh, I wish you brought that up before, but I'll tell you what, I'm perfectly willing to transfer it to the website. <laughs> oh, yeah, because you know what they're trying to do. Yeah, you know what they're trying to do, yeah. But, I mean, I've had those kinds of cases. If a witness has been called, uh, Jeopardy is Jeopardy attached, is so it cannot be transferred. But yeah. Jeopardy you know, Ed, in your situation, if the, if the officer actually says, get, you know, if the attorney gets the officcer to admit it happened outside of the jurisdiction, well, then, yeah, we're done. You're done. Yeah. Okay? Well, if the, if the officer's going to say that, the follow-up question is, if it's running a stop sign, then that's probably pretty clear that it happened in one location. Right. If the person's speeding, the next question is, did, did, did you witness the person okay. speeding in the jurisdiction of this court? Yes. Okay. Then you proceed. Right. Yeah. But then you, 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 know, you, you actually show the map and you ask the officer if you think this is the milepost that you indicated. That's, you know, within well, the, it's, and if, uh, and if the officer admits that, we're done. Yeah. And see what the violation is. 
Well, and, and there are, I mean, officers are not infallible. They will make mistakes. Right. And sometimes they cite in the wrong court. Sometimes, they, you know, they cite the wrong uh, offense. It'll happen. So if it happens, then that's where you, you dismiss it or find them not responsible. Well, I, I don't know the citation, but physics would say where they stopped them, they were definitely not speeding. <laughs> so, is it a question of how far outside the jury? No, this is where the offense occurred. Where the offense occurred. When, when he parked them at the, at the, at the speed. Okay, because okay. I, I don't know what, what they put, actually put down. Did they put where they stopped them? Or no, no, no. 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 They're okay. supposed to indicate where the offense occurred, not where they were stopped. Thank you. I appreciate that. Sure. Thank you, Charlie. Sure. Sure. Um, okay, so we've gone over most of the information on here, you know, with the state misses an element, you prompt the state's witnesses. Um, like I said, because we are allowed to ask questions, you can ask general questions. I would be careful about asking specifically, you know, did this occur in the precinct boundaries of the Moon Valley Justice Court, or did this occur in the city of Phoenix, or um, because you don't want to look like you're assisting one side or the other. Um, for defendants, let's say a defendant is charged with um, failure to stop at a stop sign, no proof of insurance, no current registration, and failure to transfer title. And they address everything except for the insurance. I would ask them, you know, I would ask them, okay, well, you've talked about your registration, you talked about the stop sign, did you want to say anything about the insurance? Because many times they'll forget. Again, these are people who are representing themselves. They don't know the procedure. They might be a little nervous, and so there's you have no problem with that. And if they just say, oh, no, I didn't want to address it because I didn't have insurance. Okay, you're done. <laughs> Normally when I start, I'll ask them, okay, so you're here today to contest this mm -hmm. charge, this charge, this charge. Or they say no, like I said, no, the insurance. You know, right, right. And you can do that to clarify. It's all up to your your uh, preference of how you want to conduct your proceedings. Yeah. Because um, sometimes I'll have individuals who said, "Oh no 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 no, I agree. I didn't have a license, but I wanted to fight the stop sign or whatever." No, you can go on the record and take judicial notice. If I mean, for instance, if they give you an address and they said I stopped them on East Street in Maine, they didn't say in the jurisdiction of this court. Then the court can take notice and say, "I know that East Street in Maine is in the jurisdiction of the court." I mean, they didn't say the words but you know, you, you know it's there and they said they said told you where the location was. Yeah. You can except for the fact that there are times when there will be something that is questionable when you've got milepost X and X right. and you know so you just want to be careful of not not taking judicial notice too many times and getting comfortable taking judicial notice and not holding the state to the standard. Right. I, I'm just saying, so, okay, so if they said that if Dobson and Ray Road, I know Dobson, there's only one Dobson, there's only one Ray Road, it's in Chandler, yeah. and it, it's in the jurisdiction of the court, I mean, that's yeah. there. Yeah, and, and I mean, I've had issues as well where we had something that occurred that's on the jurisdictional border, and, you know, the officer is saying it's Phoenix, the defendant is saying it's Scottsdale, so I go and I look at the jurisdictional map to see whether or not you know, that's part of taking judicial notice. I mean, it's not really doing research as far as the case. I'm just making sure I have jurisdiction. Not so. sitting anywhere near where I even live. Can I ask, where is that when they say it was in X, X and Y streets? You can. Okay, because yeah. I... You can. You know, I've been, I'm in Scottsdale, but I've been sitting in the west side. I don't know why anything is up there. Yeah, yeah. 
it's, it's very open. It's, it's discretionary. So it depends on how you find, you know, what you're comfortable with doing and what you're not comfortable with doing. You can ask for clarification. Yes. As long as you're not advocating one way or the other, then you're fine. All right. Evidence. Okay. Um, according to the rules, uh, the rules of evidence do not apply to civil traffic cases except for privileged communications and relevance. So earlier we had a question about hearsay. Hearsay is admissible in civil traffic violations, in civil traffic hearings. Um, business records are admissible. All kinds of information, is, as long as it's relevant and as long as it's not privileged, it can come in. Um, it is then up to the judicial officer to assign the weight that you feel that that evidence holds. So let's say you have a, a witness statement um, of the defendant's passenger who couldn't come to court, but they wrote a statement and you know, the defendant says, well, I want you to consider my witness's statement. You can admit it, you can consider it. Now, let's say the statement isn't very probative. The person says, well, I was really on my phone and I wasn't really looking, so I'm not sure whether he fully stopped at the stop sign or not. Okay, well, I'll let it in, but it really doesn't help. Um, and then other times you'll have something that's very probative. Just depends. Okay. As far as you would have that witness statement, because they haven't showed the officer, which you have that obviously you want to have them show the officer that would be because the officer could say no there was no there was nobody in the car right exactly and then that's something that you would take into consideration right. as well would, would this be covered under a telephonic hearing yes yes so how do you know that the person you're talking to the other end is well normally when they request a telephonic hearing you would want to have them at least submit something in writing indicating that they're requesting a telephonic hearing um, and then you would have them con confirm their identity on the phone. You know, I mean, if somebody is going to pull a fraud on the court, there's really nothing you can do to prevent that. Uh, but if they've submitted their documentation and then they say, yes, I am Steve McMurray, then, okay, I'm going to believe that that's who you are because you requested this and, you know, you called the court at the specific time you were given. So you'll go from there. Okay. Um, electronic evidence. Pictures from vi or videos from cell phones or tablets, security cameras, officers' body cams or dash cams, um, all exhibits are free and, and admissible in a civil traffic hearing um, as long as they are relevant. Now, Rule 29 does state that all exhibits offered, whether they are admitted or not, are part of the appellate record. So even if you say, well, I find this is irrelevant and I'm, I'm not going to consider it, you should still preserve it for the record because if the person appeals and says this exhibit should have been admitted, then the court needs to see what exhibit that was. Okay, so just a moment. Um, everything offered as an exhibit has to be kept in a format that evidence. If someone has a video on their cell phone, either you're going to have to admit their entire phone um, or you can't see that video and you can't use that video for the hearing. <coughs> Excuse me. You can play the audio portion and have the FTR pick up the audio portion, um, but I have to explain this to people all the time, that if they have something that's only on their phone that they didn't print out or they didn't save on a disc or a CD, then we can't use it for the hearing. And, the, and they always want the, the officer's body can. Yeah. You know? yeah. And if they didn't request it, well, then they don't, they don't have, have, it. have it. But that means we can't consider it. You know. Um, and also, sometimes people think that there are dash cams. Not every <laughs> vehicle has a dash cam. Mm -hmm. So they may be requesting something that doesn't even exist. Yes, sir. Okay. They have a uh, CD. We don't have a CD player in the court. Okay. So How that's why I said it has to be in a format that the court can keep. 
So what I, I always forgive me. What's the point of keeping something we haven't seen? Well, that's what I was just going to say. Oh, that's what I was just going to say. That's why we ask people to exchange discovery beforehand. And um, I have a sign on my courtroom door that says, if you have electronic evidence, please see the bailiff first. So the bailiff can put it into our equipment to make sure that it can be read or played. Um, we've had individuals who come in with something that's in a different format and we can't play it. Um, and so then that way I can at least address it with the person saying, you know, this format is not readable by, with our system, so I can either continue it so that you can uh, put this into media player or whatever format it is that we use, or they can make the decision to proceed without their video. Um, but if you're not seeing it and you're not accepting it, then you don't keep it. Okay, am I required to accept something if uh, I don't think it's relevant? No, but you would have to make a finding that, or, well, okay. If they are offering it as an exhibit and you are saying you're not going to admit it because it's irrelevant, then yes, you sh under the rule, you should be keeping it because you should be keeping it because it says all exhibits offered, admitted or not, shall be kept as part of the record. Got it. Thank you. Okay. But if it's something that you can't see, can't play, can't do anything with, then no, you don't need to keep it because they're not really offering it. It still has to, yeah, to admit it, it has to have some relevance. But if they're offering it and they're saying, you know, well, I think this is key to my case, and you're making a ruling that it's not, technically they have the right to appeal your finding that it's irrelevant. And they can't appeal if it's not in the record. Well, yeah. No. Yeah, so you got to keep it there because the appellate court wants to know what it is. Okay, you. in the document, you. you're welcome. Yes, ma'am? Um, so in my case, when I do civil traffic, they will bring in their telephone or their mm -hmm. tablet and they'll say, I have my stuff right here, I have my evidence, right? Okay, so do you have a CD or a thumb drive with that? No. Okay. Well, this is what we need to know. Are you going to be willing to leave your cell phone or your tablet here with the court because it becomes part of the hearing and part of the record and they'll say, Nobody told me I had to do that. Why was I not informed that I was going to have to have a CD or a uh, thumb drive? Because uh, then they claim that they're not able to prove their case, right? Because no one's informed them of this of this of this requirement. Mm -hmm. um, and so, in that case, like I said, you have the opportunity, you have the ability to continue the case. Yeah. If you feel that in the interest of justice, you want to allow the defendant to be able to present that information. Um, it's a good rule of thumb to kind of have that information available to defendants when they um, request a hearing. So when I'm in arraignments and I'm, I have people come in front of me, I always make sure to let them know if they've set the case for a hearing. If they have any evidence, make sure that it is printed out. If they have a video, it has to be kept or it has to be in a flash drive or on a disc. Um, when they send in a request for hearing by mail, we also advise them of that as well with their court date notice that any exhibits must be kept with the court uh, for appeals purposes. Okay, one thing regarding the thumb drive, I was specifically told by a judge that we should not accept any thumb drives because they can infect the system. Well, so if they only accept CDs, that's, that's what I was told. That, that's up to your court's policy. Our court we have specific standalone carts with um, laptops 
that are not connected to our network that we use only for hearing purposes. So that way, in case there is something that does have a virus on it, it only affects that laptop. It will not get transmitted to the entire network. So, so that's something that's going to depend on your IT uh, department and, and what your code cards are for your court. If your court has indicated we will only accept CDs, then that's all you accept because that's your court's policy. Yeah, but we, uh, we go for different courts. Uh, so I have to ask each judge what he wants. Okay. Oh, yeah. I can do that. You can do that. <laughs> yeah, because the rules aren't that specific. The rule just says it has to be in a format that the court can keep. doesn't say that it has to specifically be this format, that format, a disk, a thumb drive, whatever. I, it was a question that came up about exhibits being offered or entered. And it's only because I was an arbitrary for years of the pro tent of the Superior Court. It's always safer to break, let things in, and it's a question of weight. Because you don't know at the time the person brings it, particularly pro purse, oh, this is very important. It doesn't seem to be. Well, at the end of the hearing, it, it may have been. Might. So I, I always tell people, I'm going to let it in, but you know, particularly the other side objects. Well, actually, the, the, the officer can't object. No, the officer can't. So just, no. I'll, I'll give it the way that's appropriate. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's no harm in that. You just put it in the file with everything else. Um, so there are special rules for proof of insurance shown on an electronic device. Um, our, our statute on insurance does specifically allow that a person can uh, show their proof of insurance to an officer as well as to a court um, on an electronic device. However, it does also indicate that the court can request a hard copy uh, to be kept with the court files. So um, that's up to you if you want to do it or not. All right, evidentiary issues. Relevance, okay, we've already discussed what relevancy is. Obviously, the judge is the determinator of, uh, or makes the determination of what is relevant or not. Um, no objection is necessary if you find that something is irrelevant, particularly testimony. Let's say somebody's going on and on about a situation that happened to them five years ago when they were stopped by an officer you know, and they're just going on and on, and you can say, okay, I, I, I've heard your testimony, ma'am, but that's not relevant. Let's get back to this particular case. Um, so you don't need to have anyone object to that. <clears throat> okay. So let's say um, you have testimony from someone who was stopped for the same type of violation, but they received a warning and not a citation. Is that relevant? No. no. Officer discretion. Uh, photographs depicting how signs are posted in a different state or foreign country doesn't matter. If you're here in Arizona, you're subject to the laws of Arizona. Um, the defendant offers his or her motor vehicle record to show that they're a really good driver. No. Not relevant, right? <laughs> Not relevant. Um, offer a letter from an organization where they volunteer every month to show they're a good citizen. Okay. Um, not relevant. However, what if they're offering it to show that they weren't at that location where the officer says they were because they were performing volunteer work from 8 to 12 on a Sunday morning? Then it's relevant. Then it's relevant. Exactly. So it's going to depend on a case-by-case -case basis. <laughs> um, testimony from the officer that the incident occurred in a high-crime area. Is that relevant? Out traffic. Could be. Well, could it be. could be the reason why they were there. It could be the reason why they were there. Exactly. So, I mean, exactly. Okay. It so, matter so, but I wouldn't necessarily, as soon as the officer starts saying that it's a high crime area, I would say, well, officer, that's not relevant. This isn't a criminal case. You know, you can give them a little leeway to find out what it is why they're saying that it's a high crime area. 
Um, a recording of the defendant and officer's conversation. This That's happens. Relevant. Yes. This happens quite a bit. People are very quick now to pull out their cell phones oh, yes. and record what the officer is saying or how the officer treated them and all of that. And then also, of course, you have the body cameras now, too, that the office, some of the officers wear. Um, and so you may have some information there. Now, you know, depending on what occurred in their conversation, it may not be relevant. It may just be that, you know, they thought the officer was rude and the officer, you know, was, was blunt or whatever. Um, but it could be relevant. Okay, hearsay. You have a question about hearsay? Of course, hearsay is an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. Um, since the rules of evidence do not apply in civil traffic hearings, then hearsay is admissible. Um, once again, it's all about an issue of weight, uh, whether you feel that that statement is probative um, or whether you feel it's not. Okay? Um, but yes, it can come in, definitely. <clears throat> so let's say you have an officer who uh, arrived at the scene secondarily and took over the, uh, the, the investigation from an officer who was uh, going off duty. Um, can the officer tell you about information that the other officer relate to them? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's part of their, part of their uh, report, part of their business. Um, officer testifies about a statement given by a witness at the scene. Obviously that's going to be relevant. That's perfectly allowable. Um, what about if, okay, if the witness is not in court, then the officer can still tell you about what statement they gave. Um, but let's say that the witness is there in court. Do you want to have the officer testify about what this person said and then have that person testify again about what they said? Not if they're there. Yeah, it's cumulative. So, you know, the officer doesn't necessarily need to do that unless this, the person says they don't remember what they said or something like that. Um, then you could go back to the officer's statement. Um, witness unable to attend the hearing and submit a written statement, perfectly allowable. Uh, hold on just a moment. Perfectly allowable under the rules. Um, now I will say I've had a couple of lower court appeals that have gone to Superior Court and there is a particular commissioner who disagrees with us uh, admitting a written statement from a witness who's not there. Uh, they, he believes that that is a violation of the confrontation clause and that, that the court should not be allowing that. So if you get a case that gets appealed and goes to that particular commissioner, don't be surprised because that is the ruling that he has been consistently giving. Uh, this particular commissioner, I think, was formerly a professor, a, a criminal procedure professor. And so, you know, he's got a, a hard line stance on that. But going well, back to the rules, perfectly allowable for us to admit that statement and give the weight that we consider. So just a moment. Yeah, and, and I would say if you're, if you're going to do that, then go ahead and say, and I will admit this, I recognize that um, you're not able to cross-examine this person, so I will give it very little weight or give it the weight that, is, that it is due, which is very little, if any at all. Right, you can make that statement. What okay. Charlie said. What Charlie said. <laughs> okay, all right, here and then here. Any distinction if it's notarized versus not? No. I don't give a, a distinction to that because, again, it, there's no foundational requirements because we don't follow the rules of evidence. So, again, it's just up to the You can't cross-examine the notary either. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. So it's just the weight that you feel. How would you handle the case where there's a training officer with the officer that wrote the ticket? Mm -hmm. And the officer that wrote the ticket doesn't show up in court, but the training officer shows up and testifies. And the defendant says he's not the one who wrote the ticket. Okay. 
Well, it depends on whether or not the training officer also observed the violation or what it was that the officer observed. But if the officer says, you know, look, I just reviewed his report and what he says in his report is, is what happened, that's going to be very, very low weight. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, defendant submits a letter from their school stating that they are full-time honor student. Congratulations. Congratulations. Good for you. Um, but again, unless it's something that's being used as far as, you know, an alibi or, you know, that you weren't there at the location or something like that, um, it's hearsay, but it may not be relevant. Okay, so now let's go to some foundational issues. Um, the investigating officer gives an opinion on how the collision occurred, but did not witness the collision. Now, I get this all the time where defendants will ask the officers, you know, well, isn't it true you weren't even there when the collision occurred? No, they're never there when the collision occurs. The collision occurs, someone calls the police, and then they arrive. That's usually how it goes. Um, but they somehow, defendants think that they can't make an opinion if they didn't actually see what happened. Um, so obviously, you know, the officer is going to have to go into what their training and their experience is in, in investigating collisions, um, and then they're going to tell you how it was that they determined that the collision occurred. So they don't have to provide any other foundation other than that. It's just based on their training and their experience and their observation of what they saw. Now, for most civil traffic violations, they're going to be very easy cases. Rear end collision, um, someone turned, you know, left turn, who failure to yield, things like that. Um, there's been a couple of cases where I've actually had um, detectives from vehicular crimes that come in and talk about, you know, based on the formulas and calculating the skin and based on the crush damage and things like that. Cars don't lie. Right. The damage usually doesn't lie. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's going to depend on the, um, on the experience level of the officer, uh, but you don't have to have a certified accident investigator for every single collision. Um, a photograph of the vehicle or roadway submitted that was taken one week after the incident. Okay, we got one person saying that's not allowable. I would take it, it just, you know, if it's sitting in a, in a junkyard or something, or, you know, tow yard, and that's the first time they got to it, I mean, you'd lay some foundation for it, that's all. Right. What's the purpose of it being presented? Well, if they're trying to show the purpose of where the damage occurred, you know. Um, so, you know, as long as it fairly and accurately depicts the vehicle or the roadway, whatever it is that they're trying to establish, then you can, you can accept that photograph. Um, doesn't have to be any more foundation late. Doesn't matter if they're the ones that took the photograph or not. Doesn't matter if it was the insurance company that took the photograph and then gave it to them. If it fairly and accurately depicts the vehicle, then that's fine. Uh, calibrations, we talked about radar units a little while ago. Um, your officers should be providing testimony regarding the calibration of their unit and also how their device was checked. Um, if they don't give you that information, then you don't have reliability that that unit was working accurately. Okay, and then conclusion of the hearing. Obviously, sometimes these are going to be tough decisions, sometimes they're not. At the conclusion of the hearing, I always like to announce that the evidence portion is closed. So that way, when you're making your ruling, you don't have people say, oh, but wait, yeah. but wait, I forgot. I, <laughs> I want to add something. Um, so another reason why I always go through and say, anything else, anything else? Okay, now it's closed. Now it's my time to talk. Um, then you uh, want to make sure, I, I make it a practice to check with my bailiff or my clerk to make sure all the exhibits were admitted. Because sometimes 
we're talking about multiple things. I may have identified them for the record, but not actually said exhibit number four is admitted for the record. Um, and then you want to make sure you give your ruling on the record. Um, so you'll indicate what your findings of fact, uh, the facts that the court believes have been proven based on the evidence, and your conclusions of law. Um, if you find the individual responsible, you want to enter the judgment and the appropriate fine. Um, unless there's a mandatory fine under statute, then the fine can be any amount up to the statutory maximum, plus the surcharges and fees. Uh, as a good rule of practice, make sure that you stay to your bond card. Um, you know, you don't want to be the one judge that's always giving wacky fines all over the place uh, because it, it just doesn't appear fair yeah. to individuals. <laughs> Um, make sure that you that either you or your bailiff provides the defendant with their notice of right to appeal and then also make sure that your court does report the finding to MBD within 10 days. Um, if there's a not responsible finding, easy peasy, enter the judgment, refund any deposits if they've uh, if they have uh, put placed any deposits and have everyone have a bad day and let them go about their business. Um, let's see okay now this was one that we definitely uh, Charles wanted to address the brand new driving on a suspended license charges. Okay, so I have a real quick question. If you find in the defendant's favor, you still advise them of their right to appeal? Well, the defendant doesn't have a right to appeal if you found in their favor. Well, I know. <laughs> um, the state usually does. I don't usually inform the officers I've because some they don't. That you still need to inform them, and I'm like, why? They're a witness. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if the officer wants to go to the prosecutor and then have the prosecutor file an appeal, they can do that. But yeah. I don't see any reason to inform the officer of that because they're not an attorney. Right. So, um, so our new driving on a suspended license statute uh, for civil, uh, which went into effect as of January 1st this year, um, is ARS 2834-82. So this is when a person's license is suspended for failure to appear, or I'm sorry, failure to pay a civil fine or failure to appear. Um, the statute specifically indicates that if they provide proof of reinstatement, that the charge is to be dismissed. Um, also, uh, at during the, at the arraignment, at the arraignment, at the arraignment, right? Okay. Um, during the hearing, the officer should be providing uh, testimony from MVD records or MVD regarding the reason for the suspension <coughs> and when the suspension began. Um, they don't necessarily have to have copies of the person's MBD record. If they are telling you that they looked it up on their terminal and this is what MBD records said, that is sufficient. Okay. Um, the civil charge does not require knowledge. So if a person comes in and says, well, I didn't know my license was suspended, that is not a defense on the civil violation. On the criminal one, it is, but not on civil. Okay. I don't have a driver's license. I never have one. Okay. It's license or privilege to drive. Privilege to drive. So. So he does not have a case. The defendant, no. If, if their privilege has been suspended because they failed to appear or pay a previous citation, then they're they're out of luck. They shouldn't be driving. Plus, they shouldn't be driving anyway if they don't have a license. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, now, any other suspension for any other reason is still going to go under the standard 283473, the criminal charge. Um, and that's for a suspension, revocation, or cancellation for, of the license or driving privilege. Um, so if they have failure to complete TSS, if they have a financial res responsibility suspension, um, if they have an outstanding DUI suspension, that is still going to go under the regular criminal charge. 
Now, this is a copy of what the officers receive on their MPT terminal, their mobile data terminal. <coughs> Um, so at least this is from Phoenix Police Department. Uh, this is a copy from the CLIPS, which is the Centrally Linked Information for Public Safety. Um, so what it tells uh, on here is uh, they'll look up the driver's information. And so this is a copy of the information from MVD. Tells the person, it says the person's name, their identification information, address, sex, date of birth, date of birth, hair color, eye color, et cetera, et cetera. The, the OL number, OLN number is their driver's license number or their uh, mask number if they've never been issued a license. Tells you when it was issued, tells you when it was expired, and then it tells their status. So this particular individual here has a FR or financial responsibility suspension. They also have a failure to pay suspension out of Maricopa County Superior Court. They also have a failure to appear, appear suspension out of Tucson City Court, and they have a failure to appear suspension, a second one from Tucson City Court. So this individual has multiple levels of suspensions. Now the operations orders, um, at least for Phoenix Police Department, is that they are not to stack charges. So this individual would be cited with a 283473 criminal suspension because of the financial responsibility suspension. If they only had the ones for the failure to pay or failure to appear, then they would be cited under the civil 283482, okay? And doesn't matter that they have three suspensions, they get one charge. Yes? It looks like the last two are the same. Um, it could be it could be two okay. different charges because they're from the same two counts two counts so it could have been on the same day but two or three right different. right they failure to appear on this this and this um, so that is the information that they receive on their computer terminal and the officers should be noting that down on their notes so that way they can testify to that in in a hearing if the defendant finds it okay other than that how do you handle questions? Bicycles? Um, as far as what? Well, I have state troopers that come into court, right? They were uh, homeless people were riding a bicycle on the wrong side of the street. Were they on the wrong side of the street? I, it's up to the officer, but. Well, then it depends on. <laughs> so if the defendant doesn't show up, right? Mm -hmm. And you issue a judgment, he's homeless. Are the bicycles covered up there? Yes. Bicycles are covered under civil traffic. Um, they are covered under Title 28. However, MVD will not suspend for a bicycle violation. Yeah, suspend or jaywalking. Yeah, or jaywalking. Um, that, in fact, MVD doesn't even want those reported to MVD. Jaywalking, yes, but bicycle violations, MVD doesn't even want to know about them. Um, so that person would probably have a judgment against them, but they would not have a suspension for failure to appear or failure to pay. But he's not going to speak. And I've had a case like on a bicycle. He's homeless. Okay. So he's going to have a judgment. Mm -hmm. Where's it going to go? What's it going to do? It's just a waste of course time. Not it our problem. It goes into thin air. It goes into thin air. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, if that person has a state-issued ID, they should have some sort of mailing address on file. So notice of the, of the judgment would be sent to them. But you know, if they're homeless, they've got no money. I mean, a judgment can, they can have 10 million judgments against them. They're never right. going to pay it. But still, if it's factual, you know, if, if, if it was filed and they don't show up, you still enter a default judgment and still go through the process. Yes. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I'm just writing what you were speaking. 
this person, this person here had all these suspensions. What I thought I heard is that this is past the civil level. This is now criminal. This particular one would be criminal because of the financial responsibility suspension. So if they have any suspension other than failure to appear or failure to pay, then that's going to be a criminal charge. If they have nothing but failure to pay and failure to appear, then they're going to be cited civilly. And there's a whole slew of criminals. So yeah. That would end up yeah, criminal. there's a whole lot of criminal stuff. Can I mean. you repeat that again? Yeah. Repeat what? What you just said. Okay. If they have a failure to pay or failure to appear suspension, if the basis for their suspension is because of failure to appear or failure to pay, they will be cited under the civil violation, the 283482. As long as the violation is after January 1st. Right, January 1st. If it's before, then it's under the criminal one, because they only decriminalized it as of January 1st this year. So legislators start getting <laughs> I didn't say that. Yeah, I, I don't know what the reason was. It's supposed to be part of this initiative to be nicer and friendlier, you know, to individuals and not have people with criminal charges based on an inability to pay. Okay. Any other questions regarding suspended licenses? I'm sorry, I'm so confused by that. How is that different from the failure to pay the criminal charges? What do you mean? Well, I think I. Maybe I wrote it down wrong. The failure to comply with CFS and failure to pay a, a, a criminal fine. Maybe I wrote it down wrong. Yeah, no. Okay. Failure to complete TSS will be in an administrative suspension, so right. that will be a criminal charge. Right. If it's just failure to pay, well, let's see here. If it's failure to pay a civil fine, or failure to appear, then it's going to be civil. Yeah. Now, failure to pay a criminal fine is different. Okay. Yeah, that's going to be different. Thank you. Uh -huh. Anything else on that? No? Okay. All right. Um, another new change um, that was uh, imposed by the legislature in the last session, uh, 28707 now requires that complaints for speed violations specifically specify the alleged and maximum speed, identification, date, time, and location of incident. Um, before, it was only required that the alleged and maximum speed be listed, but now they specifically indicated that the complaint has to have ID, date, time, and location. Um, now, this is only for violations of speed restrictions. So if you have a charge of failure to uh, control speed to avoid a collision, they don't have to list a maximum speed or an alleged speed because it's not for the speed, it's for the failure to control. Okay, so just be aware of that because it's still going to be the same statute. It's still going to be 28701A, but if it's listed as failure to control and the speed and, and the speed limit boxes are, are blank, that's okay. If it's speed greater than reasonable or prudent and they didn't tell you the alleged speed or the, or the lawful speed, then that complaint is false. So even the box for the, the on the complaint. Okay. Yeah. They have to list what the alleged speed is and the box. Yeah, because a lot of times you see it blank. Yeah, and if it's blank, I mean, that's not giving a person notice of how to defend themselves or even what what the allegation is that they were doing. 
So if the defendant says, I, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be defending, what do you do then? Well, if it's not there, then according to 28707, you can dismiss it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's, it's an incomplete charge. All right, and then also just a reminder, um, statutory authority for dismissing cases under civil traffic, we only have authority to dismiss insurance if it's filed under 4135B or 4135C. Um, there is no, for whatever reason, they didn't write it in there, um, there is no statutory, statutory authority to dismiss 284135A charges. So if you have an A violation of no insurance, um, you either have to have a motion from the prosecutor's office to be able to dismiss that charge if the person does present proof of insurance, um, or you have to set it for a hearing and find them not responsible at the hearing or have the officer do, uh, decide to decline. Um, but the statutory authority, subsection A, is not included. Um, also, no license in possession. Um, if someone does have a valid license but simply did not have it with them at the time, the statute does authorize dismissal if they provide proof of a valid license that was valid at the time of violation. So that's the, I forgot my wallet, I forgot my purse. Um, we're not going to penalize you for that. Yes? I want to get back to uh, the, if, if they have an attorney who's where they are, which is out of state, mm -hmm. that attorney, the, the hearing takes place in Arizona. Right. So that's the, still the unauthorized practice of the law. Correct. The attorney has to be licensed in Arizona right. in right. order to represent and them in Arizona the court. The pro or the hearing office is a lawyer, that's the eating and that. So that's a double <laughs> reason why. Double the reason the attorney why. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I thought we did have more slides on the telephonics, but um, I'll, I'll defer to your court procedures for that. All right, so now Judge Ardenetto has some entertainment for you. There are so many questions, we are way over uh, time, so we're not going to go through the scenarios that we have. Sorry. There are a couple, of, no, no, there are terrific questions, there's some uh, long scenarios. What I want you to do is, uh, tonight I want you to read those and type up essay answers and email the essay. And I'll say that, right and now Susan's going to be up all night and Steve with her. Uh, we'll do it. Be doing 14-page responses. No, seriously, read those. Now, the, they are very good scenarios to go the, the cell phone ban uh, doesn't, the cell phone ban was an emergency enactment, but it's not actually, uh, there's no fines for that until January 1, 2021. And they actually can issue citations, only warnings at Yeah, this point. so I, mean, I don't know what the point of making it an emergency was when they can't do anything anyway. So that's not actually in effect, but it will be in effect in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So here's what we have to look forward to. Connecticut man. Connecticut man was pulled over for using his cell phone while driving, so he did what any of us would do. He went to court to prove it wasn't a phone, it was a hash brown. <laughs> Which brings us to a segment called The Kind of Story We Need Right Now. This right here, this is Jason Stiver. Jason was on his way to work one morning when a police officer pulled him over and gave him a $300 ticket for talking on a cell phone while driving. But Jason said he wasn't talking on his phone, he said he was eating a McDonald's hash brown. And that the officer had confused the two. In the officer's defense, they are pretty similar. <laughs> I mean, they're the same shape, they're both covered in grease, and they eventually end up in the toilet. <laughs> but the cop didn't believe Jason was eating a hash brown, so Jason did what any normal person would do. He went to court to prove it. This is the kind of story we need right now. 
Most of us are ashamed when we eat McDonald's in our cars, but not this guy. This guy went to court to prove that's what he was doing. By the way, the best thing about this story is it gives me an excuse to eat a McDonald's hash brown. Call mom. Call mom. <laughs> now, what I say that Jason went to court, I don't mean he put on a wrinkled blazer and mumbled some he heard on Law and Order. My man hired a lawyer, and that lawyer came to play. with a little residual hash brown. <laughs> At the trial, Jason's lawyer submitted cell phone records proving Jason wasn't on the phone when he was pulled over, proof that Jason has Bluetooth in his car so he doesn't need to talk on his phone when he drives, and a receipt for the hash brown. This trial had more exhibits than the Smithsonian. <laughs> Also, how did that guy still have the receipt for a hash brown? I'm not sure I know where my birth certificate is. You might be wondering, is this all a joke? But I assure you, it's very serious. In fact, Jason's lawyer called this the case of the century. And actually, can we go back to that quote for a second? Because that quote is from the Washington Post. The Washington Post covered this. I guess you know, the Mueller investigation is over when they've got someone on the hash brown beat. <laughs> So how much did it cost for Jason to fight his $300 ticket? $1,000. This is the kind of story we need right now. The only thing Americans love more than eating McDonald's, oh my god. The only thing Americans love more than eating McDonald's is being right. A McDonald's hash brown costs $1. Jason had $1,000, he could have paid the $300 ticket and then bought 700 hash browns. But Jason wasn't hungry for $700, 700 hash browns, he was hungry for the truth. So what happened? Well, faced with more evidence in the average murder trial, the judge ruled in Jason's favor and the ticket was overturned. There you go. So, it looks like hash browns aren't the only thing being served. This is the kind of story we need right now. Okay, let's, uh. Start over against the wall and uh, count by threes. One. Yeah. Two. One. Two. Three. One. Two. Three. One. Two. Three. One. Two. Three. One. Okay, so uh, we're going to, uh, we, we can take ten minutes to do it since you didn't get a break, but head out over to the hearing rooms. Uh, are the hearing rooms numbered or lettered? Yes. Letter. Letter. Okay. So one equals A, uh, two equals B, and C equals three. Head over to those rooms, and we're going to do some mock hearings. And it is 3:11, so let's be there by 3:21. Thank you. So. Uh, I didn't know.